0: Excuse me? Would you like a yes, I would like a children's perspective. Great. What is your name? Brittany. Brittany, how are you doing today, Brittany? Great, how are you? Very good. you want a job hosting a television show?
1: Sure.
0: On December 20th, 2009, Brittany Murphy collapses in her bathroom. The talented star with the infectious life, dead at 32. These are the final hours of Brittany Murphy. Hey, welcome in. I'm Dustin Norton, joined with my ever-amazing co-host,
1: Nadia Carrillo.
0: This is officially episode one. We are excited for you to join us on this curious and morbid road trip. I've always had a fascination with what happens in people's final moments. And while this podcast is certainly about their death, it also serves as a memorial of their life and what could have been. Let's get into it. It's December 19th, 2009. Brittany Murphy is sick, having been so for weeks. She reluctantly makes an appointment with the doctor for the following Monday. Hesitant to do so, in fear that the paparazzi will find out, her day is spent in bed watching films in anticipation for her vote for the Academy Awards. She wears a pink Beverly Hills hotel robe, the hotel and its restaurant one of her favorite and most frequented places. The hotel also served as a setting for her first date with husband, Simon Monjack. He lays next to Brittany battling his own health issues, and they watched movies into the night at their Rising Glen home, thousands of miles away, in another universe from Britney's humble beginnings.
1: She was born October 10, 1977, in Atlanta, Georgia, to Sharon Murphy and Angelo Bertolotti. Angelo was a World War II veteran and career criminal. The family would move from Atlanta shortly after Britney's birth to Edison, New Jersey, so Angelo could be closer to his children from a previous marriage. Two years later, Sharon filed for a divorce. She had grown tired of Angelo's antics. This coupled with the fact that he had impregnated another woman. In an interview with David Letterman, Brittany told a story about growing up in her hometown of Edison. There was a very exclusive Easter egg hunt for the wealthy families. Brittany begged her mother if they could go. When she finally gave in, they dressed to the tees. Reservation for two, Murphy. Sharon would tell the host, when they couldn't find the reservation that didn't exist, Brittany started crying. Her mom consoling her said, please don't ruin our Easter. They let the mother and daughter join in on the hunt, and they were invited back every year for the next 10 years. The two create a strong, unbreakable bond that will last a lifetime. Home is where my mom is. She's my soulmate, Brittany was quoted saying. By five, she's training 20 minutes away at the Verns Fowler School of Dance and Theater. There, Brittany studies dancing and singing, attending class six days a week. By eight, she begins pushing her mom to get her some headshots and taking her to auditions. It's not until she's 12 that Sharon finally realizes how badly her daughter aspires to be an entertainer. Soon after, Brittany starts acting out in commercials, her first one being for Skittles. In 1991, the two pack and make their way to the City of Angels. Very quickly, Hollywood would come to know the young girl from Jersey.
0: Just six months after her move cross-country, she lands a regular role in the sitcom Trexel's Class. It runs for 18 episodes. What follows is a slew of one-off appearances in TV with regular spots on Almost Home and Sister, Sister. By 1994, Brittany is a known talent, but with only one film credit to her name coming the year prior in the easily forgettable family prayers, playing girl at party, playing spin the bottle. Brittany needs a breakthrough. That breakthrough comes in the film Clueless. The movie shoots for 40 days. Sharon is there every day by her daughter's side. This despite being diagnosed with breast cancer and extremely weakened from the chemo, Sharon wins this battle before having a second bout in 2003, which she will also conquer. Clueless is released on July 19th, 1995, debuting at number two behind Apollo 13. It's the sleeper hit of the summer. What were some of your favorite movies of hers?
1: I wouldn't say that I have a favorite movie because I watched a lot of her movies. Um, One of the most intense ones was Girl Interrupted, just because it's a really good drama, and her acting in that movie is just amazing. Um, I mean, Clueless, of course, you know, that one's a classic and will never get old. But yeah, what about you?
0: Honestly, I never really watched a lot of her movies. I mean, of course, I loved her as Luann in King of the Hill. Yeah. But one of my top 20 comedies of all time, Drop Dead Gorgeous, She's In, If you haven't seen that movie, it's basically a mockumentary about these girls competing in a beauty pageant, and she just steals the show. What's interesting is a lot of people didn't know that she was a singer.
1: Yeah, she was a great singer. Um, Happy Feet would actually be the last major studio film that she was in. By the final year of her career, she hadn't started a major role in two years. With her career diminishing, Britney hatches a plan for New Beginnings to leave Los Angeles for New York City. There, she would take on more independent films in hopes to re energize her career, start a family, and aid her husband in finding more work as a screenwriter.
0: In the six years leading up to her marriage, Brittany would date six men with two and a half engagements. Nadia, I'm going to give you three clues about her most notable three relationships. My bum is on the rail. I don't know. Tom Green. Um, She and Tom dated in 2000, briefly. Uh, What's interesting is she didn't start dating until she was 21. And so she has quite the odd assortment at the very beginning. Uh, The next one, she followed up Tom with Mom's Spaghetti.
1: Mom's Spaghetti? I mean, Eminem.
0: Right, yeah. She dated Marshall Mathers uh, once again briefly when they met on their film, Eight Mile. Uh, The last one, the Beatles said he was their inspiration behind the White Album.
1: Mm, I don't know. All
0: right, I got to get my voice ready for this one. (laughs) All right, partner, keep on rolling,
1: baby. <laughs> <laughs> keep on rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> well, I don't know who the <laughs> singer is, but Limp Biscuit.
0: That's actually his birth No, it's Fred Durst. Yeah, they, they <laughs> briefly dated, but these were all precursors to probably her most famous ex, Ashton Kutcher, uh, and they become one of the hottest couples of the early 2000s. The couple even sport matching rings, though they never do to if they're in fact engaged. Regardless, the romance is over after seven months. That's the half before the actual two engagements. Sharon was said to have played a big part in their breakup as she was too involved, some would say, in her daughter's love life.
1: A friend would tell People magazine she was drastically different when she entered the business, full of life, determined, but over the past few years, she went downhill. There was always something off, something in the way. She had a lot of inner demons.
0: Hyper-focused on her body and image, concerned about her height, Britney maintained a slim figure in order to seem taller than her 5'3 frame. This led to rumors of a cocaine addiction, though no proof has ever materialized to support this. The two years that followed her relationship with Ashton, Brittany would be engaged twice, both relationships lasting less than a year and a half together. Shortly after her engagement to production group Joe Macaluso ended in 2006, Brittany was seen with Simon Modjak, she had first phoned in from Tokyo, where she was filming The Ramen Girl, to show her appreciation for his script, The White Hotel, which he was attached to direct. A week after their first date, the two had spent practically every night together in Brittany's home. The home notably once belonging to Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake.
1: From all accounts, Britney had extreme anxiety about being in the tabloids. Her failed relationships took a toll on her. She loved hard and fell quick. She wanted so badly to share a life with someone. Friends would warn Brittany of the reputation Simon carried. Those friends would soon be on the outs. Brittany was determined to make this relationship work. Monjack hailed from London, England. At 15, his father dies of a brain tumor, and according to Linda, Simon's mother, her son begins exaggerating things, oftentimes unable to separate fact from fiction. By the time Brittany comes along, he is divorced. And though estranged from his first wife, for many years she would go on to claim he left her mentally abused and broke. Between 1997 and 2006, Monjak had been evicted four times and was sued by a mortgage company for owing $470,000. These debts largely fell onto his partners at the time.
0: George Hickenlooper, a friend of Britney's and director of the film Factory Girl, phoned her, warning her assignment. He'd go on to ask her if she really knew the man she was marrying. This angered Brittany. Her last words before hanging up on George being, I know Simon better than anyone. All future calls would be met with Simon, not allowing George to speak to Brittany. Oddly enough, Factory Girl credits Simon with the story credit, and as an executive producer. Though the story goes, Simon filed a lawsuit claiming the idea and script had been stolen from him. In all actuality, He used the movie and the credit to obtain future investors for films that never materialized, usually pocketing the money. Though Simon attends NYU film school, finding modest success as a music video director and a photographer, his resume is short. By the time he meets Brittany, he only has one credit to his name. His directorial debut, Two Days, One Night, coming in 2001, a movie largely financed by his family. It has a short festival run, but after that, it basically disappears. After that, the only other credit he has is a movie that came out after Britney's death. The movie Abandoned coming in 2010, where he's credited as a makeup assistant.
1: Months into dating Murphy, Simon is arrested and jailed for an expired visa. Brittany later insists Simon had not been jailed for nine days, but was in fact kidnapped. And only when she paid a ransom was he released. This is just one of many odd things Brittany would go on to say over the course of their relationship. It would seem the lies Simon told had now become her truths. A month later, in April of 2007, the two wed in a secret Jewish ceremony at Brittany's home. Everyone in attendance either worked for Brittany or was a friend. Simon's best man was her chauffeur. The home becomes a compound, equipped with 56 cameras and a 24-hour security guard. The couple rarely leave and have become paranoid. Brittany is ever fearful of negative press. Simon convinced the government is spying and listening to them. The house is dirty, windows sealed off, and often covered with curtains. Clothing racks line the dining and living room from wall to wall. It's so dirty, in fact. While it didn't play a role in Brittany's death, it certainly didn't help things. That's really strange of her. And her character.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Her reputation during this time really starts to get tainted. She starts being known for being late, forgetting her lines, and even being in and out of consciousness on set. And that's unusual for her. Simon's first movie, Two Days, One Night, is loosely based on his own battles with drug addiction. And it would seem that the rumors about drugs and stuff really start to pick up when her and Simon get together. Weeks before her death, Britney, along with Simon and Sharon, fly to Puerto Rico for Britney's film, The Caller. After the first day, though, her services were no longer needed. Simon's onset behavior had become bothersome. The producers would claim it was a mutual decision, but what is factual is they confronted Britney about her husband's behavior, and she stood by him, not accepting requests for him to leave. This wasn't his first onset incident, but it would be his last. The firing leaves the actress dejected, but Simon suggests they stay in a way to salvage the trip. The family chooses to stay in San Juan a week more to vacation. November 28th, they fly home, Sharon and Simon having spent a majority of the trip sick with severe colds. They contract the bug Staphylococcus aureus. They had now passed it on to Brittany, and though they would fully recover from it, it would play a factor in Brittany's weakening condition in the ensuing weeks. During the flight home, Simon would suffer what he would later call a mild heart attack. His wife administers CPR until they are at LAX for around 2.40 p.m. He's incoherent. The fire department is dispatched and prepares to transport him to a local hospital, though Brittany pleads that it's not that serious in what she believes is an asthma attack.
1: Brittany at this point is and has been taking multiple prescriptions, using several fake names to acquire them. One of Brittany's aliases, Lola Manillo. Simon and Sharon also have an abundant amount of scripts. Simon's, among other ailments, are for seizures and sleep apnea, while Sharon suffers from neuropathy from her bouts with cancer. Neuropathy is described as numbness and weakness from nerve damage. One pharmacist, Eddie Bubar, of Eddie's Drugs in West Los Angeles, became alarmed by the frequency and amounts of their drug purchases and suspected they were doctor shopping. Confronting Simon in August, he would tell them to take their business elsewhere. Over the course of her last 24 hours, Murphy would take the antibiotic biaxin, migraine pills, cough medicine, an over-the-counter nasal spray, the antidepressant Prozac, an anti-seizure drug, an anti-inflammatory, and a beta blocker that Simon gives her as well as vicoprofen to ease pain from her period. This being the second one of the month, which causes anemia, cutting her red blood cell account to a quarter of what it should be. I mean, that's just an insane amount. I don't know how many things I just listed, but for her tiny body, and like I don't even take cough medicine more than I should. Like I I have to wait that four hours.
0: Right. I'm the same way. But you got to think about what's Brittany going through during this time. She just gets fired from the caller. She's already all over the press. There's rumors about Simon, things going on. SNL even does a skit making fun of her being incoherent and all these rumors. Friends would say that her and Simon practice what they call holistic medicine. Basically, if they have something wrong with them, they just take a pill to feel better. The problem is, is with taking those many pills, they counteract each other and they no longer serve a purpose. Back on December 19th, as day becomes night, Brittany is gasping for breath, her lips turning blue from a lack of oxygen as her lungs fill with fluid. She takes a break from watching movies to eat what will be her final meal, consisting of some Gatorade and leftover Thai food. Power throughout the night begins going in and out, due to rolling blackout. Brittany helps Simon with his CPAP mask before falling asleep. Around 3 a.m., they awaken to darkness, Brittany choosing not to use candles near Simon's oxygen machine, which he uses at times for his labored breathing, uses a flashlight to make her way to the bedroom's balcony. She asks Simon to phone her mother, who is downstairs. Sharon comes carrying Brittany's Maltese, Clara. She finds her daughter lying on the patio floor. She would later recall, Brittany was trying to catch her breath. I said, baby, get up. She said, mommy, I can't catch my breath. Help me. Help me. The mother would claim Brittany frequently complained about ailments. So during this, she nor Simon took her seriously. She was always so dramatic, Sharon said. I've replayed that so many times. She asked if she could use the oxygen, but Simon said her heart could stop. And anyways, he then had another seizure, a long, horrific seizure. Sharon then made her daughter hot tea with ginger and lemon. She would also say, Her lips were parched, like she was dehydrated. I made her drink that.
1: Brittany returns to bed. Unable to sleep, she gets up. Brittany's favorite place in the house is her bathroom. Cosmetics and perfumes cover almost the entirety of the counter space. She often spends countless hours trying on products and taking baths in there. Around 7.30 a.m., she enters the peach-colored room. Minutes later, she tells her mother, Mommy, I really don't feel well. Brittany collapses onto the small dog bed in the bathroom around 8 a.m., Sharon pulls Brittany towards her and screams for Simon. He grabs Brittany and moves her to the shower, turning it to cold. He instructs Sharon to call 911.
0: Well, tell me exactly what happened.
1: Oh, somebody's passed out. Somebody what? Somebody's, my daughter's passed out. She's, she's they're doing math to mouth. Please get your oh, quick, Okay, Please. okay. Stop All right, me. we're going to. How old is your daughter? She's 30. Uh, Please she's help. She's 30? Can you feel or hear any breathing? Can you feel or hear any breathing? (laughs) Can you feel or hear any breathing? The 911 operator talks Simon through resuscitation efforts until the paramedics arrive 10 minutes later. When they do, the narrow driveway makes it impossible for them to drive the ambulance up to the house. Parking at the base of the driveway, they make their way up to the house. They find Brittany in the shower with an unusually large amount of vomit surrounding her. Strapped onto the gurney, they wheel her down the driveway. Neighbor Claire Stables described the scene in an interview. They were pumping on her chest, but she looked very dead. Simon is visible at the top of the driveway, barefoot and in pajama bottoms. He paces in a daze. Once in the ambulance, paramedics work feverishly on Brittany. They insert a tube down her throat to try to get her to breathe properly or at all. They also begin using the defibrillator in hopes of kickstarting her heart. She's rushed to Cedars Sinai Medical Center, with Sharon and Simon following behind. They sit waiting for news. Their wait, though, is brief. At 10:04 a.m., Brittany Ann Murphy is officially pronounced dead. Simon, shocked and devastated, refuses an autopsy, claiming he doesn't want her beautiful body to be violated claiming it goes against her Orthodox Jewish tradition. The L.A. coroner, though, insists, eventually finding the actress died of pneumonia and anemia and a toxic cocktail of prescription drugs, a perfect storm of ailments, and over-medication. She had been sick at least two weeks, assistant L.A. coroner Ed Winter had said. Had they taken her to a doctor or a hospital, it could have been treated.
0: Dozens of prescription medications are found in the bedroom. The following day, Simon releases a one-sentence statement to access Hollywood. My world was destroyed yesterday. A week later on Christmas Eve, Brittany Murphy is laid to rest at Forest Law Memorial Park. Not long after, Simon and Sharon go on a press tour, Larry King, The Today Show. Simon even reaches out to a family friend in hopes of getting a book about Brittany written. The widow and his mother dispel rumors of drugs. Jack will go on to claim that his wife did not die of anything but a broken heart, brought on by the industry she so admired and fought to be a part of. He focuses particularly on Warner Brothers, pushing that the studio dropped Murphy from Happy Feet 2 due to rumors in the press. This left her broken. He threatens a lawsuit against them is coming. The studio would later claim they only replaced Brittany after her death, and a lawsuit never materializes. In one of his most shocking decisions, Simon gives a tour of Britney's bathroom to Radar.com on the three-month anniversary of her death. With a cigar in hand, he tells the crew, you are the first people ever to see the infamous bathroom. Even after her passing, Brittany Murphy can't escape the gossip headlines. Grief is such an interesting thing, and we all deal with it differently, but I find that so interesting. How are you going to take a film crew where your wife died and say you're about to enter the infamous bathroom. It just seems like with their actions, you know, they're just trying to almost in a ways milk it. I mean, that's my opinion. I
1: mean, right. Like why do people do interviews? They get paid. Yeah. That's true. I don't know.
0: That's a great point. And in, in Britney's will actually Simon is excluded. Now, a lot of what Simon said, we had to take with a grain of salt when we were doing our research. Simon says that he knew about this and he was okay with it because he wanted everything left to Brittany. But I don't think that he knew that. What is factual is that the will was made before she met Simon. So whether she just never changed it or she purposely decided to keep him out of it, nobody will ever really know. This interview and then another one that I've seen is just about a month before he dies. He's coming out of a nightclub and it's so weird. He just came out of a nightclub and he's talking about his wife dying and he's talking about a foundation that he starts in her name. The foundation almost immediately gets shut down, like within the same day almost because the IRS said they had no knowledge of it and it wasn't recognized as a nonprofit. Simon announces that he will file the proper paperwork and start the foundation, but it never happens. All the money that is raised through the foundation goes to a PayPal that's owned by Simon, is refunded.
1: Just five months after Brittany's passing on May 23rd, 2010, Simon Monjack is found dead in his bedroom by Sharon. Like his wife, the cause, pneumonia and anemia. In the months since her passing, Simon, whose health was already in a bad place, slowly lets himself go. He's oftentimes pictured disheveled, noticeably larger, and unkempt. An autopsy will contradict Simon's earlier claims of a heart condition and needing a heart bypass, as he is shown to have a healthy and normal heart. He is laid to rest next to Brittany. A month after Simon's passing, Britney's former business manager, Jeffrey Morgan Roth, reveals Simon had spent 80% of Britney's cash reserves between her pension plan and her bank account at times withdrawing hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: In the aftermath of both deaths, many conspiracy theories start to arise, many of these coming from Brittany's father, who'd mostly been absent from his daughter's life and was noticeably missing from her funeral. Angelo would be quoted saying, there's more to her death than is being told. I think she was taken out. Who killed Brittany? She didn't die of natural causes. The first theory is toxic mold in the home. Before her death, though, in October, the house was tested for mold due to a persistent leak. The test found no mold, and toxology reports of the couple also found no signs of mold or fungi in the bloodstream or sections of the lungs, thus ruling out the mold theory. In 2011, Sharon will go on to sell the home she shared with her daughter. Ultimately, it will be demolished. She goes on to live a private life out of the public eye. In 2013, Angelo orders an independent toxology report, which would show high levels of toxic metals, which could be associated with poisoning. Angelo, now a fixture in the media, claims his daughter and son-in-law were poisoned by the only person that's set to benefit from them both being gone.
1: Sharon releases a statement telling People a Magazine, I have no choice now but to come forward in the face of inexcusable efforts to smear my daughter's memory by a man who may be her biological father, but was never a real father to her in lifetimes. He has made outrageous statements over the past few years, culminating in his latest madness that my daughter was murdered. She would go on to claim that only when Brittany was making it as an actress, as a young teenager, did Angelo come out of the woodwork. Britney saw him for who he really was and wanted nothing to do with him. Forensic experts examining the case would respond saying, the test provided by Angelo did not in fact prove foul play, and there are many explanations for metal findings in the hair, such as hair dye, food additives, laxatives, and other materials someone like Brittany would have been using.
0: Angelo's other theory, being a government entity, takes out the married pair. I'll leave that one there because there's literally nothing to it. He even appears in a documentary about it. Many of these theories have become popular again being shared on social media, While they sound very enticing, they miss critical points. What we can look at are facts, evidence, and how people connected to the story acted. Angela would eventually pass away in 2019, still claiming that there was more to the story. In the end, the tragedy of Brittany Murphy is what could have been. A career filled with so much promise, the untapped potential of her talent never to be used. The films she would have made, the heights she would have soared, a woman who loved so deeply, she looked past the imperfections and saw the beauty of those around her, even those that were broken. Now just a memory, she lives on in the art she made and those who adored her. There's hope that one day, she will no longer be a tabloid or TikTok conspiracy theory, and her memory and life will be remembered peacefully. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Final Hours. Special thanks to Aura for the theme song He has a new album available on Bandcamp and Spotify called Phases 2. And thank you to Blame Black for your constant support in the making of this podcast.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media at Final Hours on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Follow us on Patreon, where we will be posting bonus content for each episode, a wrap-up show, or a closer look at certain aspects of the case. Till next time, live a life worth living.